You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor at Nori. Another one of my colleagues is making their podcasting debut, Sean Foster, supply account manager here at Nori. Hey, Sean. Hey, Ross. Hey, so happy to have you here. Are you a little bit nervous? I'd be lying if I said I wasn't. This is this is a little nerve wracking, but I'm really looking forward to being famous. So, <laughs> literally all that it takes. Yeah, I'm happy to that we made this all happen because we have uh, one of our farmers we work with to supply nori removal tons into our marketplace is here, and we brewed beer from some of his grain. So Corey Willis, farmer with Willis Farms, one of Nori's suppliers and one of Sean and I's suppliers for beer. Thanks for being here. No problem. Glad to, glad to be here. Yeah, we, we wanted something kind of a personal connection to working together. So we decided to, to brew from the barley that you su- supplied. It wasn't malted, though, which Sean, in my understanding, means that it's like it bakes the grain into thinking that it's uh, germinating. So it releases sugars into more simple forms that you can brew with them. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was, was it malted Corey? I, the brewing guy yeah. that, that milled it up for me, he was unsure. Okay. So it was. Uh, yes, it was. It was, uh, it was malted at a really, really light color. So that's one of the reasons the malt house likes our barley is because it comes off the field really light colored. So they don't have to, I guess by the time it's done being malted, it still looks almost like it's not malted. So that way it's a kind of a blank slate for brewers to do whatever they want with it from there. But it, it was malted. If it wasn't malted, probably wouldn't have been able to brew very well with it. I was trying to blame my bad brewing techniques on just it not being malted grain, but now there's no other excuse for it not being good. <laughs> oh, sorry. Ruined your excuse there. <laughs> It ultimately worked out and it's quite tasty, but I think it just required a, quite a lot of malt extract to get to the requisite gravity of it, Sean. So I don't mm-hmm. even know what happened. Yeah, we had to do some sciencey stuff. Ross had um, some malt extract, a few pounds mm-hmm. of it, and I brought it up because we were, we were trying to make an American pale ale, or I guess we succeeded in that. But uh, we dumped in a little bit of extra malt extract just to bring up the gravity to what we were we were trying to hit. And I actually, I don't know. Ross, you cheated. You already tasted it, but I don't know if I should literally <laughs> debut mine and open it on the podcast right now. But oh, yeah. Are we, I didn't know this was the I didn't know this was the original tasting. No, well, this is batch two. The first batch uh, didn't really work out very well, <laughs> and no fault of yours. But... <laughs> Wait, what happened with your first batch? I, I can't even remember at this point. Oh my gosh! Well, first off, I had to use way less barley than I wanted to because I forgot it at home and I got to the brew store and the guy basically, I had, you know, everything else for the beer. It was like around closing time and the guy was just going to let me go. And he's like, Oh, so you have a mill at home. And I was like, Oh no, that'd probably be a good idea. So anyway, I only had like, I think a pound of beers in my car and like a Ziploc. So I had to, I had to use a lot of the other stuff that he had. Uh, to mill it up. Anyway, it was it was a mess. And then I, I had a seal, like I had a primary fermentation vessel, and then the rubber seal broke. So then it got contaminated. It was a nightmare. And frankly, the second batch for this, you know, in preparation for this podcast, 
it had a few twists and turns of its own too. So maybe I'm just the wrong brewmaster <laughs> to be working on this kind of stuff for Nori, but here we are. Do you feel like we went the extra mile to get this show and get this beer brewed from your barley, Corey, or are we just fools? Uh, well, I mean, the barley was grown here, shipped to South Car- uh, North Carolina, came back to here, and then shipped to you guys. And that was been, it's been about a year. So the, the barley is well-traveled, <laughs> <laughs> more well-traveled than most people during that time frame. Yeah. Stop trying to blame the barley, Sean. It's really disrespectful of you. <laughs> yeah. yeah i also think it's funny that uh you know for a reversing climate change podcast there's probably some irony behind <laughs> it traveling you know a few thousand miles back and forth <laughs> to get in our in our bottles here well true. have you cracked yours yet I, i'm already i've already had one and I, i'm sipping on another right now i think it's okay. very tasty all right here we go let's see oh that's a good noise yeah it, it's carbonated it's nice and cold yeah, I thought it was nice, very, very malty. I like, I found it very refreshing. This is branching into like ASMR. Like, I don't know if yeah. you can hear it on my audio, but it's pouring up right now. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got some poor noises coming through. <laughs> yeah, so do I. <laughs> ASMR is right. Well, here, why don't you give it, give it a nice taste here, Sean? Give us some good tasting notes, and then we can start talking about the actual <laughs> business of uh, farming and nori. It's pretty good. It's a little, it's a little flat, but that's probably my fault. But it, it looks like beer. It tastes like beer. It smells like beer. I think, I think we nailed it, especially for, we'll call this attempt 1.5. Have you ever had any home brewers use your, your grain before? Is this a first for you? Well, mostly me. So I've, I've used it quite a bit now, but otherwise um, the only people uh, that I know of, it's not a home brew, but there's they're a local uh, brewery that just opened up a couple of years ago. Common John in Manchester, but Sean actually when he came down, we went there. But to my knowledge, they were the first ones to ever use the barley, and uh, they've got a beer that they they brew exclusively with this. And every time it's on, like the whole community shows up, and it's like just give me that one. But they they started off as home brewers, but uh, other than that, I guess me and uh, you guys about it sean we could have gone right from right to the source this entire time and figured this out <laughs> i know i also yeah I, f- I forgot about that i guess time does kind of fly by that was october i think something <clears throat> like that when it came out right yeah 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 that was fun well Corey, we should talk about how we started working together and uh, maybe it's better to even start before that with how you got into farming itself what's your story with agriculture well, mine personally is I, I grew up on this particular farm, moved away into kind of during the high school years. And when I say away, I mean like 30 minutes away. But I was still, you know, back in the summers and tossing hay bales around, that kind of crap. Went to college, did not think I was going to come back and farm. But one thing led to another, I guess. And then didn't know what else I was going to do. So I came back. Decided, you know, let's let's give this a full year, you know, a whole crop cycle and see what actually goes into this whole agriculture thing that my family has been doing for 60 years. And that was in 2012. And I'm still here. So I guess I decided I liked it. My granddad originally started it back in the 60s. And we've since we've gone through growing hogs and 
mostly growing crops to feed livestock, you know, pigs, cows, whatever. And we got out of the hog business, got out of Holstein cattle raising. Now we're doing beef cows. So it's, there's been a lot of different transitions. But where we are now, we're, you know, we crop about 3,200 acres. We've got 400 mama cows. We grow barley, which we hadn't done before. You know, we've, we're doing a lot of kind of different things than when we started. And even a lot of different things since I came back from college up until this point, all of our, a lot of our regenerative practices kind of started roughly in that time, not because of me, but just sort of, there's sort of a perfect storm. I was available. They needed something for me to do. There was a push from some, uh, some local NRCS agents and local agronomists to try some of these things. So you know, once again, one thing led to another and here we are. Awesome. Yeah. And Corey, I remember chatting with you last time too. Before I forgot about that, I mean, it's in the name, right? It's, it's Willis Farms and you're Corey Willis. So it's, it's obviously a family farm. Do you want to drill into generational farming a little bit more and talk about, you know, the generation right before you and then your grandpa? And I, I think I remember in the call, something like you've been getting into the practices, these regenerative practices, which we can define a little bit more, but you've been going into them one by one. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, I can do that. Like I said, my, my grandfather started this particular farm, but his father and grandfather and, you know, presumably mother and grandmother as well, because it was a, everybody helped on it kind of thing. We've been, the Willis family, by and large, has been in this general area for, you know, you'll have to fact check me, but there was some Willis that was granted, you know, some land for military service in like the Revolutionary War or Civil War or something. I don't know exactly. We've been here in this general area for a long time. My granddad, though, was the youngest of, I think, nine kids. And by the time he got old enough to do his own thing, there kind of wasn't anything left of the family farm. So he ventured off, did his own thing. And uh, he bought his first piece of property in like 62 or three or something like that. And uh, we actually still farm that same farm. My mom actually lives in the house that he bought on that time. So he farmed it, managed it for, I guess, 30 years or so. My dad and uncle came back from college roughly in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, they brought with them a lot of the no-till practices. That was kind of like an up-and-coming thing. And by about the mid-90s, we were, I guess we were, we were mostly no-till by that time you know, on, on every acre. If we bought a new farm, we might have to till it. but. For the most part, we were no-till. Since then, now, there's my generation has come back. I'm there, and then my uncle's son is there, Evan Willis. And uh, Evan manages my, all the cattle stuff, and he, he actually has a degree in agriculture, unlike myself. So when we were first starting to do a lot of the, you know, the more in-depth soil sampling and trying to figure out exactly how best to do cover crops and some of that, he was he was pretty involved in that kind of thing. So yeah, at this point, we are three generations that show up to work every day. Um, even my granddad, he's like 84 or something, shows up every day with his little beat up truck and his dog that tries to bite everybody and he just <laughs> butts around and does whatever. That's awesome. Yeah. Does he normally, I mean, does he, I can't, I can't remember it. Is he, uh, does he do a lot of tractor work or basically lets it steer itself? <laughs> He will do as much as he can. 
like there's certain things he can do like he'll he'll go bale most of the hay or he'll uh he cleans up around round bill racks because you know cows eat the round bales they make a mess and they you know they poop near it and stuff so you got to clean that out every now and then um so we'll put that in a, a spreader and go out and like we'll generally spread kind of that hay residue mixed with manure sort of like been sitting there composting but we'll we'll use that to to fill in like ditches to keep erosion down it's also you know really high in organic matter and nutrients so, you know he, he does some of that stuff just because he he knows where the ditches are we send him to get a lot of parts so especially if there's like something we want to pick up that's a few hours away he'll just make a, a weekend of it or something kind of go on like a mini vacation he does as much as he can but there's nothing that's like his main thing anymore yeah definitely so yeah i guess how i hear it is um yeah three generations and farther back than that even a ton more but there was kind of like the transition over to beef cattle and and uh and grazing and then adoption of no-till and then now cover cropping and i think i remember even you saying you used varus machine and kind of subdivided your plots of land differently based on soil type which that was really cool Generally, how did your family get into no-till? You alluded to that, but I imagine there's a story behind it. I don't know the whole story. And that's one of those things that growing up, you know, we had been doing, you know, again, since I guess late 80s, early 90s. I was born in 1990. So to me, no-till is such a normal thing that I don't even notice. To me, tilling is weird. But I, you know, different parts of the country, you, know, you can do different things, you know, where we are, where, you know, we do have a lot of river and creek bottoms or hillsides. No-till makes a big difference because everything's pretty erodible. So it's for our area, to me, it's kind of a no-brainer. You, you should just, you shouldn't till. That's just kind of a thing you do. But from where I'm sitting right now, I can drive less than five minutes and uh, everybody in that area tills. There's actually a guy across the road that tills. And, you know, they hit the same yields that we do, but we feel like no tilling is the better way to do it. But again, everybody's operation is different. Farming's a farming's a big complicated beast. There's a million different ways to grow the same crops and hit the same yields and use pretty much the same amount of resources. You may lose some over time, but it's really hard to quantify some of those. Yeah, I think this is like a perfect time. Corey, since you told me the widget analogy, I don't even know if this is one that you use very often or if you just came up with it, but uh, I've definitely used that a couple of times since you told me. But, you know, speaking to that, agriculture is massive and it's so different based on where you're farming, even in some cases across the road from where you're, where you're farming. You want to share the widget analogy with people if you, if you remember that one? Yeah, if I remember it correctly <laughs> in the only context. <laughs> But yeah. I think I said something along the lines, and, and this is my, I've, I've also used it since then. I think I may have thought about it when you were down. <laughs> the way I think about it, though, is that an average farmer, you know, let's say they start farming when they're somewhere in the 20 to 25-year-old range, you know, which is where I was, where my cousin was. Presumably, it's where a lot of people who farm start off. And then, let's say they retire when they're 75. So they've got 50 years there where they can actively farm and grow crops. Most of these crops you know, take a full year to grow, so they've got 50 chances to grow a crop. So it's not like 
you know, we're working in a factory where, you know, every day you're making 10,000 of the same thing and you have room to tweak all these little variables. And every day you've got 10,000 data points to play with. You know, we have one year and we can test something come like, you know, May. And then we don't know what, what the results were of that test until we harvest. And then by the, by the time we know that, then we have to choose what to do the following May. So it's very risky to just start changing things kind of willy-nilly just for experimentation. There are different fields that obviously you could use, you know, you could do something on one acre and something else on another acre. So there is some room there, but, you know, weather plays such a huge part. So you may do your experiment and that year happen to be a dry year. Well, there's one of your experiments gone immediately. And now you only have 49. But all these, all these cropping years are very precious. Farmers naturally are pretty risk averse because they have to be. There's so much natural risk just inherent in the system. What's your Nori experience been like so far, Corey? It sounds tricky to enroll all of these strange shapes of fields and to do all this work. How's it been going? Well, it's been longer than I thought it would be, but overall positive. We started with Nori, I think in 2000, it was late 2019, maybe 2000, early 2020. And since then, no, I think Nori was going through some changes too, where some of the methodology changes, some of the sheet was changing. And then we originally came to Nori through another, uh, like a business software system called Granular. And there were some, I guess, some growing pains where Granular and Nori were talking to each other in odd ways. But again, it's all kind of backend stuff. Luckily, we did have a couple people, Sean included, that have kind of steered us and guided us through a lot of those challenges. But I still maintain that it was, we made the correct decision, one, to get into carbon markets at all, and two, to pick Nori over the other options at the time. We had already done a lot of this, all these regenerative practices. We already had records of when we cover crops and what we applied, where, and our yields. Like we've been collecting data for years. And then using Nori allowed us to actually use that data to do something. So we had to shuffle all that data into another spot, which admittedly took a lot longer than I anticipated. But once it's there, it's there forever. It runs through models. I think Nori has its, all of its incentives in the right place. So, you know, Nori's not incentivized to take advantage of anybody. The farmer's incentivized to do what they need to do. The buyers are incentivized to buy from the farmers. It's a good system. So overall, it's been very positive. Uh, we recently actually sold some of our first credits. I don't know if we're even still up. We listed or if we've sold out now. I haven't looked in a couple of days. But uh, again, I've I've enjoyed working with Nori. Like I said, it's, it's been a long road, but but I'm glad that we're here. That's a good shout out, actually. Um, we just a uh, couple days ago, I want to say on Friday, we sold out, which is the first time I think we've ever done that. I don't know. Ross has done a lot of podcasts, so maybe we can fact check ourselves here. But <laughs> it's a good problem to have. But yeah, thanks for speaking to that, Corey. Kind of analogous to that, or or just a follow up question is um. So is the reason why you got into soil carbon and monetizing soil carbon is the reason out of necessity 
or, you know, like I already have this data, why not? Or is it a mentality that you and your family have adopted just being kind of the early adopter mentality or, or is it a bit of both? I guess a bit of both. Like I said, we already had all this data and we'd already done all the practices. And uh, I think actually this is kind of lame, but admittedly, the way that we found Nori and kind of got into the carbon market space was, I think, uh, just a marketing email from Granular that was like, hey, we have a partnership with Nori. You know, are you interested? And I was just like, well, yeah, sure. Why not? We're doing things that presumably would sequester carbon. Let's go for it. And uh, it snowballed and we started off with two or three fields with all the data, stick that in the system just to see, you know, we, we picked kind of a, a representative sample of all our different practices we do because we, it's not feasible for us to cover crop and graze like every single acre. So we cover crop the ones we can, we don't on the ones that let's say we can't harvest until late November. So if we were to plant cover crop, you know, the cover crop wouldn't grow. So it's just a waste. You know, not all of our the crop fields are next to cow pastures, so it's hard to graze, you know, things like that. So we, we picked a representative sample. We fed them into the system. They generated positive results. And from there, we were like, what the heck? Let's go for it. Then we dumped all like 112 fields on you guys. And uh, it was off to the races. And I think that caused a little bit of issues along the way. <laughs> but in retrospect, maybe we should have jumped from three fields to like, 12 fields and then to 50 and then to a hundred. But uh, I got excited. So I just dumped them all on there. Wow. That sounds, uh, I don't always have a ton of interaction with what you do, Sean. That sounds pretty challenging though. <laughs> we'll say that. I think it's a lot of fun overall. We, we do get in the weeds and Corey definitely challenged me as an account manager at Nori with your fields <laughs> in, a, in a good way. It's awesome. I mean, it's great farming and um, it's obvious that you like to stay busy, Corey. So the the amount of fields you have and all the practices you've implemented with variable rate and cover cropping, no-till and regenerative grazing and and everything. I mean, it's really great. I'm really thankful I was able to actually go out there and meet you in person and and see the farm and and jump in a grain bin too. Apparently that's for anybody listening that's not into farming, apparently that's the bad job to have is to jump in a grain bin, but I thought it was better than better than Disneyland. It was super fun. <laughs> Isn't that kind of dangerous? Do people like uh, get hurt or drown in it? Well, he, he told me to stay. He told me to stay on the, the edges. Ladder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very <laughs> close to the ladder. There, there was the necessary safety precautions. Corey, if you kill one of my employees, we're gonna have a problem. <laughs> I mean, okay. I did. I did, I did sign it. I, I signed like, like yes, a verbal. So that was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Corey's wife is an attorney, and for her being an attorney, I. I will say I never signed anything. It was a verbal, a verbal commitment or, you know, <laughs> Corey's like, Hey, you're climbing this ladder. You're jumping in this green, bin. I'm not liable. I'm like, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure I said I'm not liable. If I remember. Right. <laughs> he did. Yeah. That was good. Tr good training. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, what do you think is coming next for, for working with us? Are there more fields to enroll? Is it a process of just automating more and making this easier for the future uh, i guess i could ask both of you that question what's coming up next with our relationship uh, i guess i can go first on that we intend to continue working with nori we are very excited for the token launch because i think that's gonna 
that's going to change. To, to me, that's kind of like your Nori. And what we've been doing is still kind of the, the pilot program. But I'm very excited to see you know, once the token launches, how how the market develops and uh, and what we can do. You know, hoping we can sell some credits using the token in the future, or hopefully the near future. And I would I would love to see more more automation because Sean and I have spent a lot of time, you know, going over records and typing this in and you know this many bushels here and this many pounds there. At this point, Sean probably knows the second most about our operation to anyone. <laughs> wow, that's uh, impressive. All right, we got to talk about the token stuff. Then, have you always been into crypto, or is this a new thing for you? I know, again, admittedly, I don't know that much about it, but I'm very interested about it. When I was talking about the incentive structures that Nori has out, the overall methodology that includes the token, that to me, that is, that was one of the big draw factors for Nori, where that would open it up to more of a, a free market system where the value could fluctuate. That gives the farmer options to sit on the tokens for a little bit, exchange them at a later date. If we want to, not that we want to, but if we want to exchange them for non-US dollars, we could. I really like the idea that it takes care of one of the biggest problems from earlier carbon markets of the double counting thing. The token provides a little bit of a buffer in my mind, again, where, where Nori is able to apply like a robust marketplace without directly getting involved, but they still have an incentive to make the marketplace as robust as possible. But, you know, I don't know a lot about cryptocurrency in general, but I know that it allows for a lot more possibilities moving forward. Pretty fascinating to hear that. And I imagine that many people listening might not anticipate that answer. Or I think something that we hear at Nori sometimes that farmers do tend to be conservative for the same reasons that you mentioned earlier, that there's already too many variables and adding something like crypto into the mix might make it more difficult for them. What might you say to a farmer or someone who's a bit skeptical and concerned about those things? My first thing would be that adding this level does not add any additional risk, especially in our our situation where we're doing variable rate fertility and we're no-till planting we're cover cropping, we're grazing that cover crop wherever we can. Anywhere cows grazing cover crop, you don't have to feed hay. So that's a no-brainer right there. You save a bunch of money doing that. All these different things we're doing, we're doing because we think they're the correct things to do for our land so that we build organic matter, we apply less fertilizer. Just by doing variable rate, we apply 30% less fertilizer and hit the same yields. We've looked at scenarios that we're doing these things not necessarily to sequester carbon. Being able to sell carbon credits for us is just gravy. So if we can sell carbon credits and the price is locked at $15, that's great. It doesn't really like change our decisions very much because it may cost us $45 to $50 an acre to plant the cover crop. So all we're really doing is recouping some of that money. But when you throw the token in there, where the price can go you know, way up, way down, either way, I'm okay to play that market, wait for it to go up. If it does tank, it's fine because 
we were already going to do this stuff anyway. If it does go up, we obviously get to recoup more money than just the $15. And that now looks much more appealing to other farmers who aren't doing these things that we're currently doing. Now, changing their practices makes financial sense. But if the price of carbon doesn't go up, I'm not really sure realistically if a lot of farmers are going to change what they're doing unless they also get agronomic benefits, which again, I think they do, but in different parts of the country that, you know, I'm, I'm not experienced at farming in Minnesota or Nebraska, the way that they have to do things may be different. Yeah. I think you're, you're kind of nailing on some pretty central like conflicts or arguments in this whole space. And I think it's really interesting hearing firsthand when your take on, on tokens and cryptocurrency and price discovery and all these things. And, you know, another thing on just like, you know, how do these dollars and cents make sense when you're talking about actually changing practices? The agronomic benefits that farmers get in my mind, you know, if you were to actually calculate the, the value of those probably outweigh the money they would get from selling a carbon credit on that particular acre. Cause like I said, you know, we've, us doing variable rates saves us immediately 30% fertilizer. On years where fertilizer costs go up like they did this year, where they're like double what they were last year, that's a pretty big deal. If you can tack on that you're now sequestering carbon because you're doing some of these practices, then, you know, it's, it's, it's again, it's one of those like the carbon credit by itself at current prices may not be enough. But if you want to cause true change, you're going to have to pile on a bunch of little incentives. The carbon credit is one of those additional little incentives. The more money you can get for a carbon credit, the bigger incentive it becomes. But as of right now, it's still kind of a small one. I think it can, if as it builds momentum and the value of them go up, that's that's when you're. I think you're going to see real lasting change. Again, in order for this to work, not just for sequestered carbon, but for the way cover cropping works, you don't really see those benefits for a number of years. So if a farmer does choose to start cover cropping, they'll immediately see you know, some increased organic matter. Their soil temperatures will be lower. Water infiltration will be better. But after like 10 years... Then they really start to see some of like some pH and fertility issues go away. Like they're, they're like their big drowned out spots where you know, water just sits in pools. If water infiltrates better, then those big spots will get smaller and smaller and smaller. And then you don't have that problem anymore. So now you have big areas out in the middle of the field that actually make yield instead of being barren because all the plants that you planted died. But there's little factors. This is not a, a one one size fits all. It's not a one fix for the big issue kind of thing. This is this is a piece of a really, really big complicated puzzle that's gonna take years because farming takes years and sequestering carbon takes years. And it took us a long time to need to sequester this much carbon. So it's gonna take a while to clean it up. Do you have any advice for farmers looking to make this switch? Or things that you tell your neighbors when they say, what are you doing over there, Corey? This looks pretty odd. Probably not, honestly. (laughs) 
we uh i guess um, be patient you know still experiment with things that i was again I'm, I'm pretty young in the farming world so i know that there was there was a time i think where we had a field it was actually the one that you rode with me sean and it's on kind of a main highway and it was one of the first years we were doing cover crop we let it grow to like six feet tall or something and you know it's like you could barely see over the cover crop from the tractor cab and it's not a small tractor and i'm just like planting straight through it which is just super weird you know people are used to seeing tractors you know go over bearing dirt planting i'm just kind of like smooshing this six foot tall mat of cover crop down as i'm going and i remember my uncle saying you know there's a lot of people looking at what you're doing right now and of course me being like one year out of college was like oh god what am i what am I doing? <laughs> but it just, it's going to work. I mean, plants like to grow. Yeah, there'll be some growing pains. Look to the people who've done it before. You know, don't copy someone, but look at a bunch of people and copy all of them in the little bits and pieces that you think you need to do for your particular operation. Everybody's different. Some people swear you've got to plant through the stuff green we've decided that that doesn't work because it wraps all over our planters and we have to get off with like a knife and cut it off every 10 acres. Terrible. So we kill the cover crop before we get there. We may not the greatest possible benefit, but we're still in the business of growing corn and soybeans. So we still have to do what's best to grow good crops of those things. And that, that general ethos kind of overlays on top of whatever kind of um, regenerative practices we're doing. We're still getting benefits, but we're trying not to let, you know, that perfect ideal be the enemy of the good. Still growing good quality crops, being profitable operations, while also sequestering carbon. Thanks for sharing, Corey. I only had, I only really had one more question. Is there anything that you're excited about this crop season? Is there anything that you're, you know, you're trying out new or anything experimental. And I know you, you had said in the past that, you know, when you have the benefit of having quite a few fields, you can try out stuff that's new on maybe a couple of them, never on every single one of them, but do you got anything exciting coming up this year? Yeah, we've got one, uh, you know how, uh, I guess, constraints and restrictions kind of breed creativity. We, since fertilizer prices are where they are, fuels up, um, you can't find equipment. A lot of times we'll order a part for the, like, let's say that something broke, we'll order a part and it may not, it may not get there. Your know, supply, supply chain issues are going to be huge. So, you know, let's say your planner breaks down, you may not be able to get the part to fix it this year for a month or two, which is going to be, you know, huge. So one thing that we're looking into is buying another planter like an older model planter to have just as a spare, which is just kind of a funky concept. But uh, I remember when we first started selling carbon credits, you asked me, what are we going to do with the money? You know, are you going to go to Disney World? And I was like, well, I do love Disney World. But to me, this is something that popped up. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is kind of what we're going to do with that money. We, we have extra income coming in that we weren't counting on, but that may allow us to you know, buy a planter just to have as a spare. It's kind of like insurance. Um, it's also, you know, it could be, you know, a payment on 
you know, a million dollar loan to buy more land or to pre-buy more fertilizer or chemicals or something. So that way we can take advantage of low prices versus high prices. Um, so it's a, we're not doing anything in particular, you know, we we always do a test plot with some, you know, some local uh, feed reps, you know, where we try out a bunch of different varieties of corn or beans or something like that. So we're doing that again. Not a lot of new, new stuff, I guess. But this year is, is shaping up to probably be a challenging year financially. Uh, the price of grain is up, so hopefully it'll kind of all even out. But this is kind of goes back to what I was saying. You know, this year may not, maybe is not the year to uh, to experiment very much because the input costs are up by quite a bit. Yeah, for sure. I hear you. And I think you you alluded to it, and you you definitely spoke to it last time we were on a call together. You know, one of the benefits of regenerative agriculture, just having those stack practices, is there's there's always going to be up years and down years, and the neighbor that might be conventionally tilling or, you know, basically keeping the ground bare and, and focusing on yield over yield over yield on the ups and downs, your ups and downs are going to be less so than, than the other guy. Um, just because of that. Corey, do you have some place you might like to send people who want to learn more about what you do? Um, yeah, I guess honestly, the best place would be to go to uh, nori.com and find our little profile there. But we, we have a website. It's willis.farm. We don't sell anything direct to consumer, really, but I guess I should have said also, you know, we, we mainly grow corn and soybeans, two big main crops. We have some acres with wheat on it, and we have acres with malt barley. Obviously, we made beer. We're expanding our malt barley pretty rapidly. There's a lot of interest in Tennessee, and there's a couple of local malt houses opening up. So if, I guess if you're a local brewer and you'd, you'd like to get involved, then uh, check out our website, contact me. That'd be great. Otherwise, that's kind of it. We just sort of occupy our little corner down here. We grow stuff, we sell stuff, and uh, then we do it again next year. But we think we're doing a good job with it. Well, thanks so much for being here, Corey. Links to those things are in the show notes. Thanks for being here too, Sean. Hope you survive. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for me too. And uh, thanks so much for listening. If you like what we do, please tell your friends, send them a link to this show. And hey, thanks so much for listening and have a lovely day. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.